Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. We're reaching the end of this year's blockbuster season and it's hard not to notice that even the blockbuster factories themselves are starting to lose interest. Having bumped off James Bond and John Wick in their last outings and provided Magic Mike with a last dance and Puss in Boots with a last wish, it seems even the most optimistic studios realise you can only go to the wells so many times. And I miss waking up every morning wondering what wonderful adventure the new day will bring to us. Those days have come and gone. The successful titles this year were very specifically targeted, though their success was dependent on how big and sociable that target audience is. The Indiana Jones crowd are clearly less inclined to go to the cinema and will probably wait until they can see Dial of Destiny at home. But the Super Mario Brothers supporters were going out with their mates anyway, so why not? Come on, Mario! Our big adventure begins now! Ah, get it off, get it off, get it off! <laughs> Why not is a pretty lukewarm recommendation for a blockbuster, you'd think. But that's because you're probably old enough to remember when blockbuster was a small b adjective rather than a capital B proper noun. Back in the Stone Age, a blockbuster movie simply meant an attractive-looking one that word of mouth had confirmed was probably value for money. This shark, swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons of them. Jaws, Star Wars, Alien, the first Jurassic Park, the first Toy Story. Big, successful movies often rested on one simple but irresistible idea, like a reluctant son inherits his mafia father's empire, an unhappy kid discovers he's really a wizard, the billionaire and the pretty woman. Could you tell me how to get to Beverly Hills? Sure, for five bucks. You can't charge me for directions. I can do anything I want to, baby. I am lost. All right, okay. You have change for 20? For 20, I'll show you a person. But who's got time to look for simple, irresistible ideas, particularly when you don't have to? Right now, the Philistines in charge of the studio's bank accounts assume that a blockbuster is a blockbuster is a blockbuster. It's a formula now involving a very specific set of elements. This is where my jurisdiction ends. And this is where mine begins. What's to stop someone from telling them you're a cop? The same thing that's keeping me from telling them why you're really here. There's the initial title, generally a freak hit with one or two inexpensive leads. The sequel is the same with added, slightly more expensive guest stars and bigger special effects. Then there's a third and a fourth and so on, each one bigger and yet somehow more shallow and spread out than the one before. 
Yo, Roman, you need some fresh air? <laughs> Just when you didn't think it could get any better, huh? You'll need a bit of story, usually one of two. There's a magic doodad that our heroes need to find or else or else something. Maybe the world will end or their family will blow up. Whatever. The important thing is, find that magic doodad. Whoever returns the skull to the city temple will be given control over its power. You will help us find it. The other plot, if you're prepared to stretch the definition of plot that far, is simple revenge. Your star is out to get the villainous villain who killed their dog or took out their family. Or the villainous villains themselves are so implacably furious that they'll hunt the star to the ends of the earth. Whatever. It keeps going until the baddie gets blown up. Challenge him to single combat. If you win, you will have your freedom. Amen. So the numbers build, the explosions get bigger, and strangely, the endings become less and less conclusive. Is it over? No, it's never over. It's like Groundhog Day now. It's going to come back over and over, world without end. I'm reliving the same day over and over. Bill! Ned Ryerson. Bang! Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? In other words, they're putting the cart before the horse. Rather than making a good movie and then encouraging a big audience, now they're summoning a big audience with a popular familiar title and only then cobbling something together to keep them happy. To the Groundhog. I always drink to world peace. Well, what should we drink to? I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace. Don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. Until this year, it seems. At least some of these franchises are reaching some sort of final countdown. Indiana Jones and John Wick have certainly headed for the last roundup, and this week sees the Mission Impossible team appear to be slowly self destructing too. This is our chance to control the truth, the concepts of right and wrong for everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Like Fast X before it, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is so huge and dramatically dense that it can only be told in two gigantic halves. You know, like Henry IV, parts one and two. Offering understandably anemic competition to a film that's sucked out most of the week's oxygen are, respectively, a little French film about a pastry chef and yet another R-rated comedy about best friends on the razzle, Joyride. Let's just be adults. Are you horny? Sex isn't shameful. It's beautiful. Like the noises. As always, there are four of them. They're permanently on heat. There's a light dusting of cocaine over everything. And there's a lot of shouting. The one difference is our heroines are all crazy rich Asians. But before we buckle up for fun in China, we have to sign on for another Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Our lives are the sum of our choices. 
cannot escape the past. Well, one thing you've got to hand Tom Cruise and his regular director, Christopher McQuarrie, is they never skimp. The mission they always choose to accept is to give us something even bigger, more spectacular and, frankly, more downright dangerous than the last one. The audience is king, they say, and what the audience wants, apparently, is Olympic-sized thrills and spills. Ethan, this mission of yours is going to cost you dearly. And backing up the dazzling stunts, there's often an equally dazzling cast, usually with very little to do. Look at the women in Dead Reckoning Part 1. Vanessa Kirby from The Crown, Indira Varma from Game of Thrones, Pom Klementiev from Guardians of the Galaxy, and Rebecca Ferguson, the modern-day Ingrid Bergman. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. And above all, Sparky Haley Atwell. She's best known perhaps as Peggy Carter, the love of Captain America's life, but she's been a favourite if underused presence in movies for years. And here, finally, Haley's given her head as an international jewel thief called Grace. People are chasing us. Yes, they are. You're driving. Well, I say given her head, everyone knows in most Tom Cruise movies and all Mission Impossible ones, there's only one person front and centre. And apart from the very first of the series, directed by Brian De Palma, no less, where it looked as if Tom's character Ethan Hunt was a mere sidekick to John Voight's Jim Phelps, as if. It's been the Ethan Hunt show ever since. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. After Voight, Mission Impossible villains tended to be a little underwhelming. It's rarely Tom versus a worthy adversary because, frankly, who could be a worthy adversary to Tom Cruise? Instead, Ethan Hunt is often pitted against intriguing minor villains, often glamorous women, temporarily employed by a shadowy mastermind before they see the error of their ways. Well, that was certainly the case with Ilsa Faust, Rebecca Ferguson, who returns in Dead Reckoning as part of Ethan's inner circle, along with Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames as computer nerd cheerleaders. He knows the best way to get to me is through all of you. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. After we blow up a Russian submarine as a pre-titles palate cleanser, Ethan is summoned to a new mission involving a gold key. Actually, it's two gold keys that together will open... Well, it's not absolutely clear what it will open, but it's clear who, or rather what, wants to get its grubby paws on it. It seems that the computers of the world have ganged together to form a super-sinister entity called The Entity. No idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. 
I know what you're thinking. At least, I think I know what you're thinking. You're either thinking, not that old cliché, the sentient computer idea that fueled The Terminator, The Matrix and dozens of lesser B-movies. Or you're not thinking anything much. It's a plot, that's all. Get on with the stunts. So, Tom gets on with the stunts. But he's got to reckon with an attractive wild card. Grace keeps getting in Ethan's way, pinching the magic keys from under his nose. Did I tell you she was a brilliant pickpocket as well as an international jewel thief? Actually, she has another rather unlikely skill, the ability to make Tom Cruise look flat-footed. Just as he's got her and at least one of the keys in his grasp, suddenly she slips out of his hands and takes off to Venice, Rome, Abu Dhabi and wherever else the flimsy narrative takes us. You need to pick a side. Meanwhile, the rest of the stellar cast are left in the shade somewhat. Producer Tom and director Christopher McQuarrie are clearly too busy conjuring up spectacular stunts, including a one-armed car chase through the streets of Rome and an extraordinary bike jump that turns into a parachute drop in Norway. So they don't have time to find anything much for anyone else to do. Ethan, what's your objective? What's your ultimate objective? This is particularly a waste of Vanessa Kirby playing black marketeer, the White Widow. Vanessa arrives late and then gets nothing much to do apart from being knocked out. Actually, the same thing happens with Pom Clementieff as a baddie and Rebecca Ferguson as a goodie. Arrive, knocked out, repeat later. Your life will always matter more to me than my own. Meanwhile, Tom is up on trains, fighting baddies, dropping from incredible heights, stunt driving and sneering at support actors as they deliver yet more exposition about the entity. Are you guys sure you want to stay with the entity as the baddie? I mean, it's almost impossible to punch an entity on the jaw. Your days of fighting for the so-called greater good are over. To be fair, Dead Reckoning Part 1 delivers what it says on the tin, and it certainly offers plenty of attractive things to look at. There's Tom, of course. This is wildly overqualified support cast. Hayley Atwell does the best with the least coherent material. There's some gorgeous exotic scenery, and there are Tom's patented action scenes. Not only does he do many of his own stunts, many of those shattered cars, trucks and trains are real too. A bare minimum of zeros and ones were hurt in the making of this film, I'm told. Part two will arrive in a year or so, and I'll show up, I suppose, though, frankly, I'll be more interested in Vanessa and Hayley than in Tom and the Entity.
Sugar and Stars is another from the recent French Film Festival, an event devoted to films for local consumption rather than to impress the international Cahiers du Cinema set. And it couldn't be more populist French if it wore a beret and played a couple of choruses of Milor on an accordion. It's the story of a kid from the wrong side of the tracks with a dream to be a world-class cook. Ça veut dire quoi, mof? Meilleur ouvrier de France. Il faut travailler dur, énormément. Not merely a cook, but a brilliant pastry cook, a master of pâtisserie. He's already shown his skills in the kitchen of the orphanage where he's brought up, but he aspires to more. He gets a temporary job washing dishes at a top restaurant, though he has problems with authority. Oh, Yazid, will you never learn? Well, actually, he does learn. He asks the chef to give him a chance, and the chef challenges him to make his signature dish. And before you can say ratatouille, this unlikely street urchin has talked himself into a permanent job at the restaurant kitchen. On va garder le petit. Sois à l'heure et présentable. Oui, chef. Eh oh, c'est l'entrée de service pour vous. Ah, OK. But Yazid continues to run into problems. He has a junky mum who keeps arriving at the worst possible moment, like the time he'd spent hours manufacturing a sculpture out of black chocolate, and then she knocks it over just before the big chocolate sculpture championship. There's clearly more to French dessert cooking than simply creaming the butter. The kitchens of Sugar and Stars reflect France's colonial past. Yazid is Arab, his best mate is West African, the sympathetic chef who gives him a leg up is a Cambodian woman, and the sous chef is a homegrown racist. C'est quoi tout ça? Ils vont me détruire si je reste ici. Ça, je vous en supplie, laissez-moi y croire, s'il vous plaît. Ça va changer ma vie. Est-ce que l'un d'entre vous veut faire partie de l'équipe de France de pâtisserie? Now, the story, it has to be said, is a little random. One minute Yaz is in a Michelin star restaurant, the next he's back at the orphanage. And then suddenly, thanks to sympathetic foster parents, he's working at an even swankier restaurant in the south of France, hobnobbing with top food critics. Bravo. MBF, meilleur bouillule de France. Je prépare les championnats du monde, j'ai besoin d'un sponsor. Plus de nerfs, là, t'es en train de relâcher, t'es mou, là and the reason for the non-traditional story is that it's mostly all true. The real-life Yazid Ichem Rahen became a household name in France when he fought his way onto the prestigious French pastry team at the World Champs. And that event alone is worth the price of admission to Sugar and Stars, watching a stadium full of flag-waving spectators as French pastry cooks go head-to-head with teams from Belgium and Sweden. Chef, comment devient le meilleur? It's not a Paris-Bresse, it's a Paris-Chias. Do you want to be the best or a genie of the pâtisserie? Win. And how do we know if we're one or the other? You know. 
Sugar and Stars is as sweet and inconsequential as its title, but like all French food movies, the cuisine is as much the point as the rags-to-riches story. I urge you not to go to it on an empty stomach, but also don't think you can make it up with a pail of popcorn. For some movies, popcorn is simply not going to cut it. Take expensive chocolates instead. Ça, c'est la petite ours. Ouais. Et c'est la petite casserole. Ils sont meilleurs. Et même quand on regarde des étoiles, il y a des casseroles partout. Là. A while back, the raunchy R-rated comedy was strictly the preserve of immature American males, from Porky's and Animal House to the hangover films and Seth Rogen movies like Knocked Up and Pineapple Express. But then American women started to ask, why shouldn't we make that sort of movie too? You notice they didn't ask, why should anyone make that sort of movie? There are bucks to be made, ladies, so form an orderly queue. Best friends trip. This is going to be iconic. Do it like that. You do understand this is a work trip for me. Audrey, I got you. Look at me. You're thinking about a dick. Damn it, you're right. There's been a whole bunch of girls' night out comedies, white hen parties, rough night and bridesmaids, black hen parties, girls' trip, and sterling work from the gold card set, book club and 80 for Brady. And now it's the turn of those crazy rich Asians. Look at me, look at me, look at me now. I love a grand adventure. I heard that if you keep up with Chinese businessmen, they respect you more. Listen up, listen up, listen up. The American Asian market opened up spectacularly with the movie of that name. Now, crazy rich scriptwriter Adele Lim is taking it to the next level with Joyride, the story of two best friends who started out in life as the only Chinese Americans in ultra white Dakota. Hi, you guys must be new to town. We just moved from California, which is in America. Oh, we just wondered if you would mind if your daughter played with our daughter. Audrey, say hi. Do you want to be best friends? Lolo is full Chinese-American from California, while Audrey was adopted from Beijing by white parents. And because she doesn't know who she is, she overcompensates by becoming a hotshot lawyer. Lolo undercompensates by becoming a sculptor, specialising in technicolour body parts. Y'all calling me crazy. Be my translator in Beijing. Audrey, I got you. Cat lives there now. Your famous college roommate. You ready to lose to a celebrity? Audrey gets a job clinching a deal in Beijing and she invites Lolo to be her translator. And because you can't have a sexy R-rated comedy without four best friends, Audrey ropes in her college buddy Cat to join the party, and Lolo brings in her cousin Deadeye. Deadeye is coming, by the way. Deadeye, your cousin? Hey, Audrey. Oh, hi. Hey. Deadeye. Where did that come from? You know, I think I get it. Well, that's the lineup. Audrey is the uptight overachiever. Lolo is the carefree slacker. Imagine a female Chinese Seth Rogen who actually produced Joyride. Surprise, surprise. Kat is a celebrity soap opera star who's suppressed her wild, sexy youth to get engaged to her hunky Christian co-star. You know, you both actually have a lot in common. You're both very sexually free. She blew Nick and Joe Jonas. Not Kevin, not impressed. 
I am a good girl saving myself from marriage. You sure you don't miss it? <laughs> and Deadeye? Well, it's not entirely clear. She's a sort of idiot Zach Galifianakis Ringo member of the group who was possibly intended to be lesbian until the production lost its nerve. Which is odd because loss of nerve isn't noticeable anywhere else in Joyride. Oh, hi. So nice to see an American. What do you do for work? Hmm? Hmm? The cops are doing a back check. Oh my god, you're a drug dealer? <laughs> you're a drug dealer now, bitches! We can't get caught with drugs in China. You gonna plug or you gonna play? Group project! There are drugs galore, culminating in the four being thrown off a train with bags of cocaine secreted about and within their person. There's one notable night that takes R-rated fun to levels not seen since... Well, I don't think I've ever seen it, though I'm not exactly the target audience for raunchy hen-night comedies. Look at me, look at me, look at me go. Stick your hand up there like a claw machine trying to get the stuffed bear. One thing you have to give Joyride is that it certainly leans into the whole idea of Asian-American comedy. The creative team behind it are decidedly pan-Asian. Writer-director Adele Lim was born in Malaysia. Ashley Park, who plays Audrey, is Korean-American. Lolo is played by a Chinese comedian with the irresistible name of Sherry Cola. I think we blend right in. Yeah, but people here can tell Chinese Chinese from American Chinese. What do you mean? See? Okay. Hong Kong Chinese, Bluetooth. Shanghai Chinese, bougie. Ooh. Taiwanese, weird but cute. So that frees them of any accusations of racism, I suppose, though I had no idea there was so much hostility between Chinese and Koreans. What kind of Chinese are they? What the fuck is wrong with you? Are you trying to get cancelled? Those are Koreans. Oh. That's how they fun. It's a K-pop group. Yeah, they all have the same face. That's how you can tell. It's full on, it's shamelessly R16, it expects you to catch all the references, including gags about Korean K-pop bands called things like Brownie Tuesday and Howdy Fun, which I found hilarious. It's not remotely aimed at me, or indeed at most of the well-meaning liberal audience I saw Joyride with at my local cinema. Yeah, but only seven, and I think I put in eight. Just push, pull. I mean, twist it. It's not a puppet, it's my asshole! I can report that there was a stunned silence at the end when the last F-bombs collided with the final sex-positive gags to the tune of an unprintable Cardi B number. By all means, you go, girl, but if you don't mind, I won't be going with you. I don't believe these girls are serious. Girls, show them. Um, <laughs> what are we supposed to show? You're a fan of Cardi B, right? Yeah. Is she here? There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this... The argument, of course, is that they wouldn't make so many films like Joyride if there wasn't a market for them. Goodness knows how many porkies and American pie farces they put out before the bottom fell out of the first wave. We can only assume the same thing will happen after enough joyrides. And on that urge to be patient, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.